1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So imagine a world where you have the rise of a rich, eccentric Republican presidential candidate, the use and misuse of encryption and high-tech software in a White House race, the secret power of Russian intelligence, and illegal ties to foreign governments. Sound familiar? Well, if you've been paying attention to anything going on in the news today, this would sound like something that we're all dealing with here in Washington, D.C., in the United States. But this is actually the plot of a book that came out long before and was conceived months, if not years before the current events are taking place. High Hand has all of this and more. Curtis J. James, the author of High Hand, is actually a pseudonym for three men, each from very different career disciplines. Curtis Harris is a world-renowned cancer scientist. He delivers lectures and collaborates with researchers around the globe. He is the chief of the Laboratory of Human Carcinogenesis at the NIH National Cancer Institute and serves as editor-in-chief of the scientific journal Carcinogenesis. Almost said it right both times. James Rosen is an award-winning political journalist. He has covered the major stories of our era, from the collapse of the Soviet Union to the post-9-11 wars and the current military campaign against the Islamic State. He's based here in Washington, D.C. with the McClatchy Company and its 29 daily newspapers, including my hometown newspaper, the Miami Herald. He previously served as a Moscow correspondent for United Press International and is fluent in Russian. James Ellenberger is a former senior official of National Labor Federation. He served in numerous positions at the AFL-CIO, including Asian representative and assistant director for occupational safety and health. He later served as deputy commissioner of the Virginia Employment Commission under former governor and now very prominent U.S. Senator Mark Warner, who is finding his name, uh, for those that didn't know him around the country, as a main player on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. So thank you, gentlemen, for taking the time to talk to us here and spend a couple minutes with us on SpyCast talking about this book. So I want to throw out the obvious question. You, you essentially, with some bits and pieces and literary license changes, predicted the 2016 election from years ago. I mean, this book did not come together. There are a lot of books that have come together at the last minute about the election that were written in about three weeks that came out right before November 2016. But this book was conceived quite some time ago. So I'll start with you, Jim Rosen. Since there's two gems, it's always going to be interesting. Um, where in the world did this idea come from?
2: Well, uh, Kurt Harris, uh, my co-author, uh, had the main idea for the book um, and uh, uh, originally approached me, and, and we brought in Jim Ellenberger soon thereafter. Um, and uh, but the 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 idea developed as we as the three of us uh, worked on it together. Uh, But we did start with the core idea of when when we started writing the book, Russia was completely, and we we were actually worried about this. Russia had fallen off the front pages. I'm a former Moscow correspondent, so I remember when Moscow and US-Soviet relations were on the front page of newspapers uh, every single day. And uh, so things had changed. Russia had kind of fallen off the map in terms of news. That started to change with uh, with uh, Russia's incursion into, to some degree, into Georgia in 2008, but really into Ukraine a couple of years ago. It, it came back on the map, and now, obviously, things have escalated.
1: So, so Kurt, let me kick that question to you, since, since you had the... What was the original idea that spurred all this on? The original idea was
3: that I have these uh, squash buddies of mine, and uh, I thought it would be a great idea to to write a novel. And the the initial thought was, well, let's find some interesting characters. And one of the interesting characters was a billionaire who was from Silicon Valley and um, was running for president. So that was one. And then the second was, well, there's got to be a triad of, of other characters that would be interesting. And that led to... The uh, the publisher of the L.A. Register, uh, Thomas Hawkes, his daughter, who was uh, CIA knock, which is non-official cover without government protection, and the most dangerous kind of job you can have as a spy. And the third was a reporter that worked for her father. So we have this interesting triad of of husband, wife, daughter, employer, uh, employee that are in the news business, and uh, that led to some other uh, threads that made a connection between Roberts, the presidential uh, nominee, and the Republican Party, and the newspaper business.
2: And and Russia.
0: (laughs) And and if I could add, uh, when we started writing this, and I don't want to really reveal how long ago that was. (laughs) It was a. It was prior to an upcoming presidential election, so in our minds, it made sense to look at this novel idea that we were working on in the context of the upcoming presidential election, to sort of say, "Oh, well, people will be interested in national politics and the upcoming election, so let's let's develop a character that fits into that," and hence we developed Stuart Roberts. Well,
1: and I think what's interesting, I, I'm. Let's assume that means an American presidential election, not 2016. And I think back to the 2012 election when, when Republican candidate Mitt Romney actually referenced Russia as the number one threat, and everyone made fun of him for it. And it's like, oh, he's, ty- he's so caught in the Cold War. Like, what is he talking about? Russia's the main threat. Um, which today we look back and say, whoops, uh, you know, as uh, as somebody who thought he made sense, but very very others other people did. I'm like, yeah, he's got a point, but he got hammered for bringing up Russia as a threat, even back in 2012.
2: Right. And, and I worked at the Pentagon, and there are still senior military officials t- today who I spoke with on background, uh, even as Russia began to mess around with, in the Ukraine and, and uh, our election and so forth, who said, China... Is a greater threat than Russia. It, it, as this plays out, China will be a greater threat, and so there's a there's to some degree a, um, a split, I think, between the civilian and the political leadership of the country now, which which really sees Russia as a threat, and the military. You know, the military they prepare for wars, right? And they and China has been acting very aggressively, uh, you know, increasingly aggressively, and and so it's. You know but, but I think China and Russia are very different kinds of threats, and what we see Russia now is they they 're a threat to our core democracy because they 're meddling in in our elections they 're trying maybe maybe trying to get a certain person elected president
1: well I mean the, the, you know from the military perspective, and every people have been mentioning this that the Russian army and the Russian military is no match right. for NATO, no match for the United States, whereas China could certainly cause a significant problem. And from a purely military standpoint, you can potentially see their point, they're perhaps not looking b- more broadly than that at kind of the heart of American democracy, at what Americans believe. I mean, you know, from looking at people in the heartland who are now buying into Russian propaganda, yeah. you're seeing that more and more today where that could potentially be a bigger threat yeah. than Chinese military.
3: Well, one of the things that happened was Putin, it uh, was KGB, And then came into power, and they have a new weapon, and that's cyber, and 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 the cyber has led to uh, false news, and and uh, and uh, that's that's uh, a a, and they they've used it very effectively, and they've been using it for more than ten years now.
2: And they've and then they've used the cyber cyber to plant fake stories on on Facebook, but the the Russian skill at uh, disinformation. Is legendary. Um, It goes back, you know, even predating the uh, the Soviet regime to the czars when they put out the uh, the horribly anti-Semitic protocols of Zion, which outlined a worldwide Jewish plot to take over the world. I mean, the Russians are diabolical geniuses at running massive disinformation campaigns, and this is what they're this is what they're doing now. And I think they're still doing it. I don't think they're done with. Uh, I don't think they're
1: done with it. Why stop? It works. So, right. I mean, it, you don't quit when you're so far ahead. I'd, I'd like to go
0: back to one thing yeah. that you said, Vince, about the Chinese military and high hand. We have a character in our book, uh, uh, a Chinese uh, physicist, who's a member of the poker group. The book is uh, revolves around a poker group that was held 12 years earlier than present-day action in the book. And uh, to a significant degree... Professor Jin uh, is involved with the Chinese military, and that comes out a bit in our, our book. We didn't develop it as much as we wanted to because it it was something that sort of got cut out and left on, on the floor, but may appear in a future novel.
1: <laughs> You're building characters for the sequels. I mean, that's somewhat tangential to the broader story. I mean, that, I, I can't emphasize for the listeners out there how... This book predicts the current situation from at least months, if not years, prior to when the current situation is taking place. It's it's pretty fascinating how, I mean, you're not you're not soothsayers. You just kind of I'm not even sure you read the tea leaves. You just thought of arguably one of the most kind of crazy out there stories you could have put together, and now we're just seeing it in real life playing out. Um, let me ask you, Kurt, about. You're, you're a scientist, and you, the book really focuses on a lot of technical and scientific developments, technology. Um, first of all, how much of this is based on reality? But the, the bigger question, when you're talking about disinformation campaigns, there's a real you know, a psychological element to this also, Like where you're really looking at effective ways of convincing people of things, of communications. You know, you talked about cyber as a scientific – that's a tool, right? That's a tool to get information in, but the the, the amount of time the Russians must have studied America, not only the culture, but also the kind of psychology of how to get these ideas ingrained into our belief system. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that played out?
3: Well, first of all, it's, it, it's tradecraft that the uh, KGB treats, uh, uh, teaches uh, Putin and the, and the other people in terms of, of uh, strategy. That's one. Secondly, they've been sending people over in the United States to live and in a clandestine way. Uh, to uh, learn about the the American culture. And the thirdly is social media. And social media is worldwide right now, and there are ways of manipulating it. And as uh, Jim Rosen just said, they're very clever at doing this. And so this has been a long campaign that they've had uh, based on on, uh, knowledge of the United States, finding people in the United States that are going to cooperate with them, either knowingly or not knowingly, and that's partly what's happening in, in concern in uh, our current uh, situation here in the United States.
2: I think the most I think the most bizarrely uh, exact parallel between the book and current events is that the plot is partially driven from the start with uh, with Frank Adams, the reporter, um, realizing that Senator Roberts made a trip to Russia some time ago after he'd made, made a campaign trip to Israel and but the, the trip of Senator Roberts was never reported. It was never reported on any of his campaign disclosure documents, on any of his financial documents. It should have been reported and so Frank Adams who is a reporter for the Los Angeles Register, his, he's been on the, the Roberts presidential beat for a year. He thinks he knows everything about Senator Roberts and he can't understand how and why Senator Roberts would have made a completely secret trip to Russia that 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 nobody knows about, that he didn't know about. And so that part of the novel driving forward is Frank's attempt as a reporter to find out why did he go to Russia and why didn't he report it. And if you think about the demands on Mr. Trump and to disclose his and his son-in-law's past dealings in Russia uh, why hasn't he released his tax returns uh, a lot of people think that that he did business and I mean his his I think it was Donald Trump jr. said at some point in the past that they actually had gotten a lot of money from the Russians because they couldn't get money from American banks and so uh, it, it's that's a very eerie parallel, which is what what draw one of the one of the main plot drivers of our book. And it takes Frank Adams, the reporter, quite a lot of time. He doesn't find out, he doesn't get the answer to that question. Why did Roberts go to Russia on the right. secret trip? Why did he not report? Until pretty far along in the book. And and it seems like we are living exactly through that kind of a situation now where everybody from the FBI to Senate Intelligence and House Intelligence Committees to the now Special Consul Mueller is trying to answer that kind of a question about Mr. Trump.
3: And his associates like Flynn and others right. who uh, also have been to Russia and received money for doing various things and were, we're not reporting it and uh, are under investigation right now. The other aspect of, of the book is that one of the, the other main character uh, is uh, Lisa Hawks who is this CIA uh, agent uh, working as a knock. Who's very much involved in in finding out the inner workings of of the interaction with oil companies and uh, with money and oligarchs, and uh, and although she's keeping this a secret from from her husband, uh, uh, Frank Adams, and uh, so there's this dynamic of their marriage, and you know how how do you go through a marriage, and keep secrets from each other.
1: Well, I mean, it's an interesting concept because, you know, people have always wondered how agency personnel talk to their relatives, their close relatives. They, they obviously have to lie in some cases about what they do. But nowadays, and this is certainly the case prior, but even now more than ever with a lot of the leaking going on, a lot of the sources that have to be protected, journalists are in somewhat the same so similar circumstances where they may get a scoop that the source really needs to be protected – um, and, you know, if you had a journalist married to a CIA officer, you would have that kind of back and forth with both sides, not being able to tell the other what's going on. Uh, you look like you wanted to say something earlier. Yeah, gonna... yeah, another,
0: another eerie uh, uh, fact in our book that is being played out in uh, events going on today is the threats against journalists and the uh, very obvious uh, – Effort going on to paint journalists as being biased and and trying to represent things that did or didn't really happen, uh, but the threats are very very serious and this is not new, of course, in in Russia, uh, and it's part of, an important part of the book, but it's also part of how um, Stuart Roberts, the principal politician in our novel, is treating the press, and uh, he's very resentful and. And you can see that in his interactions with the press.
3: Now, every spy novel has to have some technology in it, and uh, we have some technology that involves right at the edge of science fiction. And uh, that's one of the interesting aspects of of the spy craft, tradecraft, and how that's moved forward in in regards to surveillance, in regards to brain to computer uh, interactions, and uh, So there's lots of things behind the scenes that we wrote about
1: which are really very close to reality now. Well, that's one of the things I I wanted to ask you about, especially Kurt, because you you do have things that are right on the edge of not already being used. And throughout the history of at least American intelligence, because we, we actually check ourselves every so often, there have been times when new technology has been abused. In the intelligence, when I think of MK Ultra, is a great example of this, where trying to learn more about the mind, trying to learn more about different reactions of pharmaceuticals, and that turned into a bit of an abusive situation. You also see that different arguments are made during the science, and there was science underlying the enhanced interrogation program after 9/11. This wasn't just rando people going in there and twisting fingers off. There was a lot of planning and psychology and even neuroscience put into some of these operations. So. With this technology, especially surveillance technology and other things that you, you do highlight in the book, but you take, kind of take it to that next level of things that are science fiction-y now, but in 20 minutes could be reality, <laughs> how, do, how do we go about making sure, and I guess this is from every perspective, right? We have a scientist, we have a labor person that kind of representing the, the average worker, the people of America, and also the journalist. How do we use all the different aspects of kind of the, the checks and balances that are outside of the government to prevent... That next abuse of some of this technology, because it's it's pretty scary if it's used the wrong way. The Technology is is changing, and a lot of that's
3: uh, uh, undercover, if you want covert, with uh, DARPA funding it and and the CI uh, CIA quality uh, uh, com- uh, uh, d- development of of things that are, are are not known to most of us, and uh, so there there has to be some vetting of of when to put it into action and how far to go. And uh, I have a lot of confidence, actually, in our intelligence community that they usually are, uh, especially with some past uh, experiences, are are, uh, usually very cautious about. But there's a competition. The Chinese and the Russians are doing exactly the same thing. And the Israelis are doing exactly the same thing. So uh, this is uh, a different kind of competition. It's an arms race, but it's a technological uh, uh, competition, And uh, so we have to not only be aware of what's happening, but we have to keep up. But judgment is something that I have actually a lot of confidence in, in the American intelligence community.
1: More than me, but okay um, <laughs> it, it, it just it seems like in the past there have been uh, some of these issues being forced to being brought to the forefront. Um, in particular, if you you know I, I think of the, the backlash to whatever we're dealing with right now and you know the time it takes for this to kind of play out, uh, if it's clear um, that uh, the Russians were heavily involved using cyber operations and in, in influencing the election, I, I can see that the call for a reciprocal response may require using some of these high technologies, not just cyber, but other technologies that may go beyond what we would consider. I mean, that's what you see throughout, right? The enhanced interrogation after 9-11, MK Ultra, right after World War II and the Cold War is beginning, you know, whether it's developing things like Napalm, you know, for VIA. these are all things that, I mean, science is dual use, right? Science, there's no such thing as bad science. There's science that can be used for good and good for e- used for evil. Um, cyber is the same thing, right? The Internet is created, and it does wonderful things for us, right? We can look stuff up instantaneously. We can communicate over long distances, but we can also influence elections and blow up Iranian centrifuges. Uh, so there's well, – we, we we have influenced elections, but – you know, Chile, oh,
2: Venezuela. Let's well, going all the way
1: back to Italy in 1948 where we did it the old-fashioned way. We used the mafia to bash some kneecaps <laughs> for us, but we weren't doing it in such a way that, you know, this kind of under, under the the, uh, the table. Um, let me actually – Jim Ellenberger, let me, let me ask you a little bit about the election itself, not necessarily the ins and outs of 2016, but as somebody who was working within the AFL-CIO, which has – it's a political organization to a degree. I know it's a labor union, but it's a political organization. How, how have you been able to kind of do a post-mortem on the 2016 election to a degree and see how some of this Russian disinformation could have had impact on some of the people have been traditionally Democratic voters for generations but were swayed to vote for Donald Trump? Was it because of – basic things like the economy, basic things like they saw Trump as a potentially better leader or can you see how Russian disinformation campaigns could have interacted with some of the rank and file steel workers in, in Pennsylvania or some of the people in Michigan and Wisconsin?
0: It's a great question and uh, it's something that, that the labor movement has looked very closely at in terms of, uh, of how union membership uh, voted in the recent election and it uh, was not good news for labor. Um, traditionally, um, union households have voted uh, in a neighborhood of 60% or more for endorsed candidates who are endorsed by unions, and that can be either Republican or Democrat or even Independent. But uh, in recent decades, it's been predominantly Democratic. Uh, this year was, or 2016, was... Uh, was a wake-up call for the labor movement uh, because Donald Trump did appeal to a lot of uh, traditionally um, uh, union households who supported union-endorsed candidates, and Donald Trump was not a union-endorsed can- candidate, at least not in, uh, in any major uh, way. I think the uh, uh, Fraternal Order Police uh, right. endorsed him. But uh, to what extent could that have been uh, influenced or affected by outside interference well very possibly could have been because things that were important to workers whether they're union workers or not union workers are jobs right and jobs became a very key issue and one that uh, Donald Trump tended to gain more from than uh, Hillary Clinton for understandable reasons and uh, this may or may not have been influenced or uh, you know, emphasized more by outside influence than we are, are aware of.
1: So, this, this might be a blatant stereotype, but I'm also thinking that, I mean, I know people in these areas, some of my family is from, you know, kind of the, the Rust Belt areas where it's labor, but it's also, you know, blue collar workers. And the trust issue is one that is predominant. The idea yeah. of, you know, we want someone we can trust, we want somebody that we can believe in. And I can see potentially how. The Russian disinformation campaign would have really hammered home that idea where, you know, how many people trusted Donald Trump versus trusted Hillary Clinton was influenced. And you can actually see the numbers when some of these WikiLeaks stuff came out that was, you know, from the hacks of the DNC and other things, whether it was her getting the answers to the questions or the debates beforehand or the Podesta stuff. You can see, I think how that affected kind of the middle American blue-collar worker. Is that something that you would consider as being legitimate? Again, I don't want to stereotype too much. Oh, absolutely. Uh,
0: And and trade is a key example of that. Um, Unions have endorsed Democratic candidates who've who've, uh, gotten before uh, union audiences and said, uh, we're for jobs in the United States, and then they go and they cut uh, trade deals which end up uh, harming uh, their very important constituency. And so the trust factor that uh, workers felt with uh, candidates that were endorsed by their unions got weakened enormously, and clearly that can be affected by lots of mm-hmm. uh, ways in which uh, outside interests or just your opponents right. uh, could use that to their benefit.
3: Well, certainly the Republicans have been very effective over 15 15- years twenty year history of of opposing uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, so I don't think they were influenced by the Russians, but the Russians added on to that uh, to disarray the the election and uh, to uh, lead to uh, la- lack of trust of,
1: of, of uh, Mrs. Clinton. Yeah maybe it's a possibility where we can say the lack of trust was already there, the the issues were already there. The Russians didn't create any new issues, but they certainly put their foot down on some ones that, that already existed before and, and,
2: and remember, the margins in, in in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, one or two other states were, were between Hillary and uh, Trump were, were, were very small. I think a, a difference of 170,000 votes yeah. would have come with it. So, So it wouldn't have, to, to Kurt's point, that wouldn't have taken – there were not that many people who had to be influenced away from Hillary – to, to cha- cha- change the
3: election, yeah. but, ti- yeah. but timing is important. So hacking of of the emails of of uh, her campaign and releasing that information just at the right time, right. which most people believe was related to Russian influence and WikiLeaks and so on and so forth. Uh, in terms of <clears throat> of politics. That was a brilliant move on the Russians' uh, 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 side.
0: In terms of trust, uh, the candidates themselves sort of laid the groundwork, and Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, was for the Asia-Pacific trade pact before she was against right. it, and that didn't go unnoticed.
1: Right. Well, I mean, trade was huge. I mean, TPP and you had everyone talking about getting rid of NAFTA and all these, you know, moving stuff to Mexico and other places was kind of a key component to this. That's why I think that the union side is so interesting because again, this is so not spy, but it, the the fact that union members have been voting with the union for decades if not like 3 quarters of a century until this last election. Something had to have shifted. And whether it was Russian influence or not, it's going to take historians years and decades to figure it out. Let me, let me turn back to you, Jim Rosen, because one thing that doesn't appear all that much in this book, because you had no idea how to predict it and you know, in the sequel, maybe to deal with it, is actually the, 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 the interesting battle between news agencies themselves when you're looking at stuff like RT and you know, whether it's now even Fox News battling with their own people on air, whether now this is the time we're recording this of the back and forth about the Seth Rich murder, where Sean Hannity is continuing that he said he's going to take a break from talking about it for, for the sake of the family. But this is after Fox News a day or two earlier had said, we're dropping this all together. And the, kind of the battle between the liberal-based news agencies like MSNBC, what used to be the center of the road, but CNN is now being pushed the other side and Fox News. Now, those are American. Those are, those are all legitimate news agencies, but the, the now introduction of the illegitimate news agencies, and I'll straight up say Russia Today is not a real news agency. CCTV, the Chinese version of that, not necessarily a fully legitimate news agency. They're state run. And it makes it very easy for a politician to claim fake news when there are literally organizations out there creating fake news. <laughs> so, yes, we didn't, uh, we didn't
2: really focus on that in the book. Uh, I mean, I think one thing – I'm fascinated about what's happening with Fox News because my opinion is that, um, is that there's so much interest among Americans in what's going on with all this Trump business, the Trump-Russia ties, the – Um, the possibility of collusion, his associates having had contact with Russian intelligence officials before. There's just so much intense interest. I mean, uh, the uh, newspaper readership is way up. Television viewership is way up. And I think what you're seeing is that if you look at the Fox viewership, the, the absolute hardcore zealots, if you will. Who who are Trump's base? Okay, the, the people who will not give up on him, as he said, if he shot somebody on Fifth Avenue. Okay, they're not abandoning Fox, but I think you have an, another large group of traditional Fox viewers who are not zealots, not ideologues, more more pragmatic. They're conservative, but they 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 don't want fake news. They want to know the truth, and I think they're the ones who are moving away from Fox because they don't think. And it's it's clear if you watch the Fox coverage of what's been going on in the last month. Fox, Fox, it's amazing to me, Fox is either ignoring all of these big bombshell stories or they're explaining them away. So if you're a conservative but you're a thoughtful conservative and, you, and you're fascinated, as we all are, by this Trump-Russia story, I think there's a good chance you're going to say, you know what, I, I I'm not going to watch Fox because I, it's not worth it. I, I don't learn anything from them, and I think that's the core problem of Fox, where their credibility has 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 really been harmed on, yeah. on a story like this.
3: To to go back to High Hand, one of the things we do uh, explore and have main characters on is the oligarchs in Russia, and especially those controlling oil, and. Uh, we have quite a bit of interaction between the largest oil company in the United States and the largest oil company in Russia. That might sound familiar.
0: <laughs> and their attempts to influence elections. And, and uh, Senator
2: Roberts, uh, uh, secretive Republican presidential candidate, having a, a relationship with one of the richest oligarchs uh, that the American people don't. Uh, don't know about. Uh, we, we hear certain things about President Trump having had a relationship with one particular oligarch. And an oligarch, not all uh, listeners will know, an oligarch is uh, the richest of the rich uh, multi-billionaires who came out, of, who, who got you know obscenely wealthy after the breakup of the Soviet Union in uh, 1991. There originally were seven oligarchs uh, I believe five of them were Jewish, which did not go over well with a lot of the Russian people because Russia has a history of anti-Semitism. Now there's, there was a second generation of oligarchs, a third generation and so forth. But this is a fairly small number of seenly rich people, most of whom used their positions in communist Russia to, uh, to, to to claim the spoils when communism ended.
3: Well, I mean, Putin himself is considered to be one of the richest people in the world. And uh, I don't think his salary is very high.
2: (laughs) And we do have Senator Roberts, I I think, as Kurt reminded us at breakfast this morning, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, going to visit uh, Putin early in the book. Isn't that right? Yeah, in the first 20 pages.
1: I'm not sure you're going to see a Donald Trump trip over to visit Putin. Any- I, I can't. Well, you know what? I, I keep saying that, that there's no Be way. Be careful. There's no way that White House will make those decisions. Um, <laughs> one, one thing actually I want to kind of lay out here also is one thing people still don't quite get about modern day Russia is, and you see this when they talk about red scares and like your red baiting. This is not a communist society. You know I, I Jim Ellenberg, you again, going back to the labor union side, you know your history, i mean your big labor union, your history is really from kind of the socialist communist foundation, and you more than anybody can look at modern day Russia and say these are not communists, these are not even left wingers, these are not labor union pro you know they 're reembracing Stalin and not lenin and marx that 's for sure
0: well, just let me comment a little bit about the the link between uh, the communist movement and the labor movement. Uh, undoubtedly, the labor movement benefited from uh, organizers and others who were active in the labor movement who were communists. But it became quickly uh, known and, and labor officials became very rapidly aware that uh, the communists in their ranks were not uh, so much interested in the particular well-being of working workers but rather in advancing their political agenda, and so uh, m- most unions in the United States enacted uh, provisions in their constitutions to throw out the communists. And communism uh, became, uh, you know, a, a dirty word in the labor movement. Um, I used to work for Jay Lovestone, who, who uh, was hired by George Meany uh, during World War II to head up uh, a group to aid work, workers in uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. Jay Lovestone was one of the founders of the American Communist Party, and when David Dubinsky introduced him to George Meany, he said, uh, uh, he used to be a communist, but the son of a bitch is okay now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so well, uh, it's a modern Russia today, I mean, I think that people still want to latch on to this idea of, like, if you – If you talk about how threatening and possibly damaging the the Russians can be to American democracy and American society, they're like, oh, you know, this is a red scare all over again. These are not reds.
3: Right. Yeah.
1: But I I was in uh, Moscow
3: about three months ago, and one of the things when talking to uh, a number of of, uh, people in in Moscow, um, many of them Russians, uh, that they – nationalism – Is really important to them, and one of them said, "You know, all of us have some Putin in us, but it's about five percent." And so they want to be the greatest, also, just as Trump wants the greatest. Right. And uh, so they may be against Putin in terms of many of the things that he does,
1: but they like the idea that he's strong. You you see that a bit, like. You know, you spent a lot of time in Moscow. You were, you're basically the correspondent for UPI there. Um, one thing I saw when I was there was this kind of revisionist history of the Stalin period where they're forgetting the fact that he was responsible for 25 million Soviet deaths. And they're looking at it, this is when people feared us. This is when people respected our power. Do uh, you see Putin really latching on to that? Do you see that it's playing with the Russian people?
2: Oh, you know, of course. I mean, I,
1: I would say that two, two-thirds of
2: our novel takes place in Moscow, and I, I think you get a you get a sense of that. But you know, as we see nationalism, this you know is is resurgent. I mean, Penn uh, lost in France, but it certainly it's resurgent in France. It's resurgent in other parts of Europe. It's resurgent in. In Russia, as, as as you were saying, um, uh, it, and, and Kurt was saying about why Putin is so uh, popular, it's in it. And Trump has made it resurgent here. Um, I mean, nationalism is a very strong force internationally, and it tends to happen. It tends to be stronger when people are when people are uh, unhappy. Um, I think that uh, you also see it in. You mentioned uh, how the Russians are dealing with Stalinism. Um, you know, you see the same thing playing out in our country still today. That despite the evil of slavery, right. and despite um, the, all the lynchings that happened throughout the South, it still is uh, controversial to remove the Robert. Is it the Robert E. Lee Memorial in in Richmond? That's still controversial. Where the Confederate flag flies and. Columbia, South Carolina is controversial. You don't you don't see that, for instance. By contrast, you don't see that in Germany. You right. don't see you don't
1: have people would be very very nervous. Yes, you you, yes. You don't
2: you don't have major political public fights in Germany over whether the swastika should still be displayed because it's it's it, because it's part of our heritage, which is what the Southerners say here, uh, and and what some of the Russians say now about Stalin. Uh, so I think Germany has handled this evil part of their past in a way that Russia has not, in a way that the United States has not, and in a way that other countries uh, have not. But it's, but it's difficult. It takes a real reckoning.
1: So we've successfully pissed off Southerners, Fox News viewers, and, and it, who else? The <laughs> Trade Union, everybody... Calling them communists. Let, um, let me be clear. Let me be clear. That just, just.
2: Cl- let me edit my what I said about the Southerners. I think the majority, the the majority of Southerners, do not want to see Confederate uh, flags and memorials displayed publicly. But but they are fighting against a rear guard minority that that feels strongly um, that it is part of. It's a legitimate part of their
1: heritage. It's nice that you felt the need. I. I pissing people off is something I do every day, so I was perfectly fine with that, but um, I
2: just wanted to be fair.
1: So you may or may may not be able to talk about this, but as I talked about in your bio, you worked under, at the time, Governor Mark Warner, now a very important senator, working uh, with Richard Burr as kind of the two leads uh, for the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, Do you have faith that the Senate committee will get to the bottom of this based on what you know about Warner and others.
0: Well, I can say about Mark Warner that he is uh, one of the most serious policy wonks I've ever met in my life. Here's a guy who would uh, uh, come up with an I- come up against an issue, and he would learn everything he could about that issue. He he would delve into it to the nth degree, and he would uh, he would come uh, to meetings. He would come to. <coughs> the office of the Virginia Employment Commission, he was the first governor to visit the VEC office uh, in its history when I was there, um, walk into an office and say, Hi, I'm Mark Warner, glad, uh, I, I want to thank you for all the work you're doing for the state. Uh, you know, he was a very gracious guy, very serious guy. I think um, I think he's, you know, it, to say he's enjoying the the, uh, the stage that he's on now, I don't know, it might be a little far, but I think... I think it suited, uh, it suits him well. I'm also interested in his relationship with uh, Richard Burr. Mm-hmm. Uh, I live in North Carolina now, I moved from Virginia almost six years ago, and Richard Burr is one of my senators, not necessarily, that. I'm a big fan of his. But I will say uh, that I'm encouraged by his behavior as chair. Of the Select Committee on Intelligence,
1: it was tricky because he was part of the Trump transition team. He was somebody that, when when it went to the SSCI, people are like, "Hmm, you know, somebody." But he's—they've both been very as opposed to the House, uh, which exactly. seemed tainted from the very yeah.
3: beginning. I have much more confidence in the special prosecutor and the FBI than I do of either of those intelligence commu- uh, committees, and those are serious people. And uh, they're, they're, they don't allow, in most cases, I think, allow politics to get into their business of following the leads, following where the money goes, and asking the question, is there a crime? And they're, they're, they're on it right now. Is the money the key?
2: Well, I, wanna, I just want to add about Richard Burr because I covered him very closely. I was the Washington correspondent for the Raleigh News and Observer. Uh, when Richard came to Washington first as a member of the House, later became a member of the Senate, and I covered him very closely. I got to know him quite well. He's from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He was a medical device, if I'm remembering right, a medical device salesman. And um, my, my impression of, of Richard uh, has, has um, my opinion of him has risen, over, rose over time when I was covering him. I'll be honest. I thought he was uh, a lightweight when I first started covering him. Uh, he didn't seem to have a lot of intellectual depth. He's very ambitious. He's. Extre- I mean, they're all ambitious, but he's very ambitious. And I think he's now in a role uh, that suits his ambitions. And he. If he can be, and he's he's never been, he, he's conservative, but he's not Tea Party conservative. And he, he's a, he's a, what's interesting is he's a, he's a businessman like Trump. He comes from a business background, and I think if he can make a name, if he can make his biggest name, and become most famous for having co-led what is perceived as a, a fair, honest. Um, Intelligence investigation into one of the biggest scandals of our, or potentially one of the biggest scandals of our era, that will really cement it, give him a legacy in the Senate, and I think he cares more about that than about anything else. Hmm. So I, because of that, I think he's. Um, I, I have some confidence in Richard, uh, and and it seems uh, as as Jim and Kurt said that he and he and Warner um, appear appear to be working together fairly well. Yeah.
3: Well, in, in High Hand, we talk a lot about money and uh, how people trade uh, favors for money. And uh, as I mentioned earlier with the uh, oil companies. And so, yes, you follow the money. And that's a ju- sort of a general rule. I have friends who are in the F- FBI. That's the way they work. Because gon- that leads them to, to uh, the right people
1: to prosecute. Well, you can see that with Michael Flynn now where he took unannounced or unreported funds from whether it was Turkey or Russia or other places, um, got him into a bit of a a bind. Um, But it's all, yeah, it's all about the payments, about the money. It's very hard to hide that kind of money, Uh, and and that may be what unravels all of this in the end. Look, in all honesty, that may be what completely... Uh, Vindicates Trump that that he's not behind this But it seems like it's going to take out some of his underlings Well Jared Jared Kushner Uh, uh, May have some issues May have some issues Some
2: explaining to do Remember his father was uh, I don't know if he plea bargained Or was indicted on Money related uh, uh, charges
3: And who was the lawyer I mean who was the uh, prosecutor
2: I believe it was Comey wasn't it
3: No Ed Christie who? Was Chris
0: Christie Chris, oh, Chris Christie. Christie
1: Okay,
2: okay. Well. <laughs> Which may
0: explain why he didn't end up in a Trump uh, administration <laughs> <laughs>
1: That would have been a little awkward um, So let me ask, So is there plans for a sequel? Is there plans? Or are you guys now starting to get together And over squash and dinner And starting to talk about how to turn yeah, this we, into we, we met last night and, and discussed uh,
3: strategies And, and storyline and, and we debated various ways of, of moving forward and uh, so, the, the answer is I'm very
1: enthusiastic about it. Well, the trick is that you know, between now and when we post this podcast, or between now as we're recording <laughs> this podcast, there are probably five new news stories that have come out Did you about. Say it's going to be two weeks. Before? Yeah, it's yeah. So this is going to be a little less than two weeks. But in the in the hour we're recording this, there's probably we're, missing we, we a missing stuff that's going on. President by the right, time. and so. Uh, how do you go about thinking about and planning that and saying how do we write something that the, the irony is there's a great TV show that we're, we're pretty – we're involved with the Americans, right, which but, is the um, awesome early show, 1980s man. about Russian illegals in the United States. And people ask me all the time, you know, have you been watching it? And, and the answer is yes, but in tongue-in-cheek I say, well, I've got it going on in real life right here in Washington, <laughs> D.C. in front of me. And if you wrote some of these stories in the newspaper, you'd think it was The Onion at first. Because some of them are so crazy And far, things are happening so fast So how do you go about figuring out the plot Of a book that's going to come out Let's say in a year or two yeah. That may get superseded Or in the military Overtaken by events By so what's happening in the world We do exactly what we did in
3: the past And that's you know, be aware of, of what the, what's, what's, uh, what's happening in the world And, and, and predicting in part where the action's going to be, and uh, so uh, I think uh, we at least one idea we have of action, which I'm not going to disclose, uh, is uh, one one way of going. Okay.
2: But you know, what's what we were talking uh, over breakfast this morning that when we when we were writing the book, we thought that the scenarios that we were crafting were really. Really over the top. I mean, we, 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 we wanted the book to be realistic in terms of the science, in terms of the politics, in terms of the geography of Moscow. Geography of other places, and, and 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 we wanted it to be true to history, and I think we succeeded at that. But in terms of the main plot lines, I mean, I remember we would laugh when we were writing. This is, this would, you know, this. We
0: wanted it to be exciting. Yeah, we yeah, wanted it and, to be and exciting moving. <laughs> and moving. And, and we
2: thought, you know, we thought this is this. We we are writing historical fiction with an yes. emphasis on. Fiction, right. and and the truth is, is we probably didn't even go far enough. And so, if we were to write a sequel, I think we would have the advantage of having lo- looser, looser, and farther boundaries. We could we could be more imaginative and know that the future might catch up to our. Well, yeah, you have
1: to have your candidate be in space or something, and bring like some <laughs> science fiction into it to make it so far that it remains fiction. Moving forward, a lot of
0: it is predictive. Uh, you know, you try and and look at what's happening in the world and say, okay. What are going to be the real hot button points in the future? Uh, and uh, you might you might draw a map and just throw darts at it and be as successful that way as, as intellectually trying to predict it. But you know we got we got it somewhat right in the in the first novel, uh, High Hand, and hopefully in the sequel we will continue that. Yeah.
2: Uh, and version. I think there's going to be a lot that's going to come out. People keep saying it. It does remind. I know Watergate comparisons are. You know people think they're lame and so forth, but so much of this reminds me of the development of Watergate and the way people talked and the, this story's going nowhere and it's over, and we're tired of hearing about it and so forth and i I think there are going to be so many more shocking uh, things that are going to come out that you know we're, we're I think we're at the beginning of this scandal we're not at the end of it. I think one part of it is the Russians are famous for keeping dossiers that they call a compromat. Compromat, coming from the word compromise, on on all sorts of figures, foreign figures who 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 deal with Russia, visit not just politicians but business people, scientists. They you know they assiduously collect information, and you can be sure that they have a lot of information about Donald Trump, and that very little of it has come out. And I think they're just biding their time and they're watching to see. <laughs> When some of that information might be useful,
3: but one aspect of the three of us is that we 've all traveled throughout the world and extensively in the Middle East in Russia in uh, China in uh, uh, south america and so and, and we 're living here in largely in, in Washington and this may be a bubble, but it 's a bubble that 's full of information right. Right. and uh, and that's something we're avid readers, and, and we have friends and colleagues and sources who are involved in various aspects of of, uh, of the global uh, uh, environment, and so it's it's the hardest thing is choosing which of those venues and which uh, which of those lines of of storyline uh, to use that word twice uh, to follow because there's several. That one could, uh, and we were very fortunate, which in our our initial book, we'll see how fortunate we'll be in the
1: second one. Well, we'll we'll have you back. We're looking forward to the sequel coming out, and we'll have you back to talk about it when it does. Uh, High Hand is available now anywhere good books are sold. The author on the cover of the book, well you'll see is Curtis J. James. There's actually three people that we've had the pleasure of talking to today. Curtis Harris, Jim Rosen, and Jim Ellenberger, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Uh, And you out there in listener land if we haven't directly insulted you we meant to <laughs> so we we apologize have not gotten around to insulting whatever certain demographic you are um but don't let that sour you on this book it it i, I read it when it came out back in the day and, and it was like wow this kind of sounds a little bit like what's about to happen was you kind of there are the hints of things when the book first came out but then now it's pretty eerie about how right they got it so check it out uh Curtis, Jim and Jim, thank you for talking to us here today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank Thanks. you, Vince.
2: Thanks, Vince. Great great questions. Awesome.
1: Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at IntlSpycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.